Before I get started today with who my guest is, I want to bring up something really important. I recorded this show on Wednesday morning, and yet that afternoon there was another mass shooting in the United States. Another mass shooting at a school. But this wasn't just any school, it was my alma mater, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. So I know, I mean, I hope, everyone listening is continually shocked by these shootings that take place in the United States, especially the ones that take place in schools. But when it's your school, when it's the halls that you walk down, the cafeteria you sat in, you know, it hits home in a completely different way. And it's pretty terrifying. So I wanted to bring this up before you listen to the show because my guest today is Sam Harris, and he has been a lifelong critic of religion and God. And this is a topic we discuss quite heavily on today's show. It's also especially present in the wake of yet another American mass shooting. And the reason for that is because every time one of these things happen, there's this pathetic response by politicians in this country who offer their quote-unquote thoughts and prayers for the victims and their families, but do absolutely nothing to stop these tragedies from continuing to happen. So if you want to hear more on this topic after the show, stick around, and I'm going to talk to my editor, John Kelly. No, not the xenophobe in the White House right now, the actual editor at Vanity Fair about how these weak NRA-backed politicians respond to these shootings and what we, you, me, anyone who's listening, can do to affect change. So now on to the show. My guest today is Sam Harris. He has been described as one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, along with his buddies Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dinette. Sam's a trained neuroscientist. He's written half a dozen incredible books on free will and the end of faith and religion. And this conversation today left my head completely spinning afterwards, and I'm sure you will feel the same way too. It's so weird to have you have you in my office yeah. because you know the I voice. hear the voice, right? And here you are, Sam Harris, in the flesh and the blood. Unless you're not really real, and this is all a figment of our imagination. How's it looking? Am I peaking there? Or is this, this, this you, is good. You're, you're sound great. I'm cool. sure listeners are already wrapped. Okay. Uh, uh, thanks for coming today. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, pleasure. Lots of stuff to talk about. Um, uh, you're a, a big believer in religion, is that right? Yeah, big time. Are you, yeah. what, a Christian? Mormon, Mormon, Mor- and now Scientologist. So <laughs> I'm good to go. Uh, so I, I listened to a few of your books uh, the last this last couple of weeks. I've read a bunch of your your stuff online. Uh, we have the same book agent, so I've heard lots of accolades about you. And I, I thought when you, uh, I, I thought this would be really fun. We'll get into a few debates. Mm-hmm. And I went online and uh, uh, I figured maybe I'll just see some of the stuff that some videos of, of Sam's debates. And the first thing that popped up was like with like millions of views, it was like 10 times Sam Harris destroyed the person he was talking about. <laughs> so I've decided I'm not going to debate uh, you. Okay. We're just going to have a conversation and I'm uh-huh. going to acquiesce to you and you're going to be right no matter what I say. Uh, but we will still talk about things. Okay. Well, then I'll, I'll put my beast mode under wraps. Put your beast mode yeah. under wraps. Uh, no, feel free. I, I'm just going to cower mm-hmm. into the corner if that happens. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, lots of stuff to talk about today. Uh Religion, uh, I want to talk about, of course, Trump, um, mm. artificial intelligence, consciousness, uh, free will, uh, all, these, all these things. We'll see what we can cover. Um, but I, I just want to – I don't know a lot about your background. Were you born not believing in God or was this – like how did, how did well, you end up where you ended up? It would, it would be only decent for me to point out that we're all born not believing in God. Uh, that uh, clearly you have See, to get I indoctrinated. Already yeah. I already lost. <laughs> so, <laughs> this, this is a, fa- a favorite point that that um, you know, Richard Dawkins and other prominent atheists make at every opportunity. It, it's 
the idea that you can you can be a Muslim or a Mormon or a Christian child uh, is is just as incredible as saying you are a socialist child or a uh, a Republican child. I mean, you, what we're talking about is a just the fact that people get reliably indoctrinated into the religion of their parents, and uh, it's worth questioning the. The normativity of that. So yeah. So but how it, you, how you, what 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 is your family? Yeah. So in my in my case, there was none of that, and there was there was also no atheism either. I mean, it just didn't come up. So there was no so there was no what, religion, and there was no counter religion religious programming. At what point did you really start to kind of question it all? Well, yeah, I became very interested in religion and religious experience, you know, quote, spiritual experience and psychedelics and meditation and other esoteric things in my 20s, or actually before that, in when I was about, in my teens, really. Uh, and I write about this in my book, Waking Up. I, you know, I took MDMA for the first time when I was 18. Did you take MDMA today or are we... No, no, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. We'll <laughs> no. see how this interview goes. Yeah. No, it's been, it's been many, many years since I've taken really any psychedelics, um, or MDMA is not technically a psychedelic, but but any drugs like that. Um, but it it had it just it truly bowled me over and changed my worldview. And, and it doesn't do that for everybody. And and I was very, at least in my generation, very early to take it. I wasn't aware of other other people in my peer group taking it. This was in '85, I think I took it. So um, it was big in the psychotherapeutic community. Uh, there was no such thing as raves. There was no. It wasn't a party drug, or at least I, yeah, I was certainly unaware of it being a party drug. And it was given to me. Uh, well, I mean, it was, it was advertised to me as something that you, you could really lead to kind of a breakthrough in your own conscious perception of yourself and your place in the world. And uh, so there was no. This, there, it was not in any sense given to me as like this is going to be you know, a fun drug and let's listen to loud music and dance and 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 so it's not that there's anything wrong with that necessarily but I took it as a tool to realize something about the nature of my mind and I think that set and setting mattered um, but so I became very interested in I had been someone who was I was certainly an atheist when when I had that experience and. It's not that I, I didn't become a believer afterwards, but the thing that became absolutely clear to me was that, which I, I, I certainly had not known or even suspected, was that there, there is an experience that people have, that, or a range of experiences that people have uh, and have had historically that justify uh, or at least explain many of the, the noises people make uh, at the center of every religion. So, you know, the, who was Jesus, and what was his experience, and why was he talking that way, and why well, were people finding you're it talking incredible? About this almost like in a religious experience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, no. It, had I been religious, it would have been. Oh, it would have. It would have been absolutely natural to interpret it in Christian terms or Muslim terms, or I mean, it's, and and the and the it is a, a genuine problem for for secularism and for our our intellectual and political lives generally, that we really only have religious books and religious language with which to give meaning and context to these kinds of experiences. I mean, that's beginning to change. And my book, Waking Up, was my attempt to give a rational understanding of these kinds of experiences. But it is a problem that, you know, the moment you have an experience like this, you have the best day of your life, you know, you, you wake up and you 
you love all sentient beings as yourself for whatever reason, uh, the only people and and books and messages that come rushing in to fill the, the void in your understanding there are religious ones or new age ones. You know, you have these cockamamie beliefs about crystals and and channeled entities and all the rest that, that suddenly vie for your credulity. Uh, and very few people have uh, antibodies to those kinds of bad ideas because it seems to be a forced choice between cold rationalism and and certain kinds of experiential deficits and the richness of the religious worldview. And, that, and that's, there's, a, there's a third path there, which I've been struggling to articulate. So, so it's really interesting. So I grew up, I was born Jewish. Um, <clears throat> I had a, a moment in college where, you know, <clears throat> lost amid my youth where I, you know, went to some Bible studies and I was quickly like, oh, well, that's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and I've kind of flip-flopped back and forth whether I believe that there is something something larger to all this and, and whether there is not. And I remember about three years ago, my mom passed away <clears throat> quite suddenly of cancer. And uh, and seeing that experience happen was, you know, was a very kind of disruptive moment, of course. Yeah. And about three weeks later, I came, I was, she, she lived in England, I came back and my wife, Krista, was pregnant with our first kid. And I remember we, and it's very emotional, the, the juxtaposition of these experiences. And we went into the <clears throat> the hospital uh, Cedar's over here, and um, our doctor, who was delivering our first kid, he's uh, very well known. He's um, he delivered my wife's sister, like he's been doing this for for fifty years. He's six thousand kids, and I said to him right before we went into the delivery room, I said, "You know, do you believe in God, or that there's some higher purpose to this?" And he said, "You know, I don't, but when you see what you're about to see happen, it's hard not to." Right. And I'm curious, like. And I kind of, there are some mornings I wake up and I'm like, we're just these, these cockroaches sucking off the earth and like, that's it. And there are some mornings I wake up and I look at my kids and the way I feel about them and, and the world that we live in. And I think there has to be something else to it. What am I, am I picking the, like, what, what do you, what's your response to that? You know, I mean, is it? <clears throat> yeah, well, uh, so I have two responses to it. I mean, the first is there is something else to it and, and we are in the process of discovering how much else there is. So we, we don't know how strange the universe is. We don't know how beautiful human life could be. We don't know how deep human well-being could be. We don't know what kinds of minds are possible. We don't know how fully we could change our own minds in the future, either through you know, simple things like meditation or you know drugs as we know them, or you know in a thousand years integrating our our brains with with the internet or whatever that whatever is the internet years, you know maybe. yeah no but i mean like, <laughs> yeah. yeah so but like you know we could be in the matrix i mean all, all, there's no reason why uh that it would be completely irrational to expect that we have a clear picture of everything that's possible for good or for ill now and so we, the circumstance we're in is one where there is a, a functionally infinite number of experiences that are possible. And we know there's a range of extraordinarily bad and extraordinarily good ones. And we're trying to navigate in this space as intelligently as possible. And, and science and rational conversation, I would argue, are our best tools to, to solve that navigation problem. If you want to figure out what is going to make life better for you or, or, or for 
your family or your society, you want your beliefs about what to do and not to do to actually track reality. And for that, you don't want mythology, you don't want self-deception, you don't want conscious fraud, you don't want lies told to children persisting for the rest of their lives. You want an actual empirical investigation of what's true and the and error corrective mechanisms uh, of conversation where bad ideas get criticized hard until they go away. So, but but to go back to to the moment of birth, I mean it, that frankly doesn't strike me as in need of a a romantic or sentimental uh, <laughs> or much less mystical explanation because. I find birth, I find the, the details of, of human procreation to be about as weird as oh. they could be. It's like, like if you had a, if they weren't what they oh, were, no, completely. And, and someone made a science fiction movie, yes. and this is what they were, right? So you have the, this yeah. little bean get put into a, a woman's abdomen that way, and then yeah. it grows there for nine months, and then comes bursting out, you know, w- one way or the other. Uh, and, it, and it's always a medical emergency, yeah. right? And always the most <laughs> fraught experience. Um, and it's only some massive cascade of hormones that makes it even remotely tolerable uh, uh, for for the woman. It, it's um, it's about as strange as it could be. And if there were, uh, you know, I, I think at some point it's, it's to be hoped that we'll find a better way to do this. You know, it's a safer way to do this uh, because it's crazy. It's a crazy. I mean, we, most, I, we, we, we've, insane thing we've done it twice, and it's you know, yeah. I'm I'm happy we don't have to do it again. I mean, it's not that I wouldn't necessarily want. Uh, another child, but it's each time. I mean, it's never easy. It's like I mean, if, if for someone, it's easy. I mean, some people get lucky, but it's it is a medical emergency. But but well, it's a medical emergency, and it is a medical emergency. Yes, but at the same time, it's this insane. Th- it's like the most insane thing you could ever witness in your entire life. Yeah. Uh, but watching them grow into people is also insane and, and arguably much more interesting. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to, it's amazing to be suddenly be in relationship to this person. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the strange things about birth too, is that uh, I'm sure everyone who's gone through this experience has noticed this, but it's surprising once the child comes out, it's amazing to realize that you weren't really, it's like they, they, they've been there in some sense for nine months. And so the difference between them suddenly being out and, and, being in uh, the mom is so total, and yet you you haven't really gotten the fact that they were there. I mean, they were there 15 minutes ago before they came out. You know, yeah. it's just but it's just such a it's such a surprise, and it's such a surprise that it is surprising. But, but didn't didn't that experience for you uh, have some sort of? I mean, have there been experiences for you? Maybe it's not that that you have questioned your atheistic beliefs, or no? And I, look, but, I'm not saying this from someone. Yeah. I'm not a religious person. I don't go to temple on Saturdays or. But but what would it mean to? So let, let's just take all of the data. So yeah, many of these births go badly, right? So you have good people who are have prepared a life for. Actually, I know people in this circumstance. So it's like the people who have yeah. gotten okay. ready to have the baby come home, you know, and the baby dies in childbirth. And so, so what, what sort of God would, would design the world like that? I mean, the, the, the actual religious picture that we are given to contemplate is that there is an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnibenevolent God who has designed this situation for us. And so he can do anything he wants, and he's letting 
letting babies die often horribly and letting their parents be bereaved and and astonished um, though they've done nothing wrong and there is no i mean this is the you know the the problem of evil in some in some bigger sense that there is no answer to this i mean the free will is not an answer to this it doesn't apply to the baby that just got strangled by the umbilical cord or worse um it doesn't apply to the good people who this happens to, and it doesn't apply to the sociopaths who get everything they want in life and die in their sleep painlessly. You know, it's, it's, uh, there's no justice here other than the justice we make, right? And so the, the, the religious conceptions of what is happening here are so bizarre morally. I mean, they're so immoral. If, 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 if a human created this situation, and to say nothing of hell where... God is going to send the people who don't call him by the right name or believe the right things on insufficient evidence. I mean, it's a completely insane proposition. But more importantly, it's a psychopathic ethics, right? It's not ethical. It's the antithesis of what we mean by ethical. There's no good God could set the world up this way. So so you, so you you can trash all of what most religious people believe most of the time, uh, if you're looking for a beautiful and expansive interpretation of what's happening here. And, and but so there are beautiful and expansive interpretations. I just think we don't need to believe anything on insufficient evidence to embrace them. I mean, so consciousness is consciousness is a miracle. The fact that the lights are on for either of us or for our children or for anyone else in this corner of the universe, the fact that it's something that it's like to be us, that is a miracle. That is that is what gives the universe value. And that makes what we do here incredibly significant. In fact, it's the most significant thing we know of in the universe. We don't know... We, Consciousness. We don't, yeah, we don't know any species in the universe that is playing a better game than we are. And do you think that it is all a result of us as a species just trying to make it in the world? Or is there a chance that there could be some larger reason for it that we couldn't understand. For example, you know, if I, if I took your book, waking up and, and read it to my dog, she would be like, when are you going to throw the ball? She would like, there, there's not a word in that that she would understand, but, and is there a world in which that the, we could be, we could have that level of understanding of, of the universe and we just are not designed to, to know what the larger picture is, or is that ludicrous to you? Oh, so, so are you asking, might there have been a species just like us? Who no, had, no, 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 I'm saying might there be a reason that we are here oh. uh, that, that, um, that is not, in, you know, that is not some, you know, knowing all God above us, but some sort of spirituality or some sort of energy or some sort of something. Uh, I, th- I think the, to think of it in terms of there being a reason or a purpose, kind of front-loaded in the system, so kind of a, a teleological picture, like this is all headed toward a, uh, something based on a plan, that's the wrong way to think about it. But there's an equally profound and awe-inspiring way to think about it, which doesn't require believing anything like that. Which is? And it's just that we have this this vast opportunity that has we don't know what the limits are. I mean, the limits are, insofar as we understand, only the laws of physics. And so, I mean, to take one way of describing this, um, 
How much do you, do you wait on those? Or no, okay. That was uh, just for, an airplane for the listeners. Yes, this is Sam a fe- heard, fellow. Sam heard God, and he yeah. thought, and it wasn't it was yeah. an airplane. Fellow podcaster worried about the sound of an airplane. Uh, so, I mean, t- so someone like someone who I've had on my podcast a couple of times, David Deutsch, a physicist in, at uh, Oxford, has this view of knowledge, you know, human knowledge and beyond, being as powerful as you can imagine. So, I mean, his thesis is, and it sounds almost trite or tautological when stated, but it's, it's actually not. His, his thesis is that anything that is possible, anything that can be done in this universe, can be done with the requisite knowledge unless prevented by the laws of physics. And so his picture of the world is that with the right knowledge, you could go into the relative vacuum of space and just begin sweeping up stray hydrogen atoms and fuse them into heavier elements and use those heavier elements to build the smallest possible machine capable of building itself and any other possible machine. Uh, this is something he calls a universal constructor. And so now, now we're beginning to talk about something like nanotechnology, right? Yep. And with the right knowledge, you could assemble any intelligent system, including a human being, atom by atom, right? So this is there's no reason, insofar as we understand physics, to think that that's impossible. So and, and and so now you're talking about building, you know, brains and beings of unimaginable capacities, uh, simply based with the, on the right understanding. Um, now, uh, so that's that's one kind of vast picture of possibility. I mean, he, he details this for anyone who's interested in um, to some degree on my podcast, but but more in much greater detail in his book, The Beginning of Infinity. Uh, but there, So the, it is a picture of, of functionally infinite potential that we are participating in right now based on the brains we have, and that nothing else is. I mean, chimpanzees are not doing this, right? Our, our nearest cousins are cognitively closed to virtually everything we're doing. And we are, so we, we are almost like, um, to, to take Deutsch's picture, it's like we have achieved a kind of cognitive escape velocity where we are, are are able to grow in the direction of a kind of unimaginable creativity and knowledge production. Uh, again, constrained only by the laws of physics, and this will be aided obviously by by our building artificial intelligence at some point if we don't screw that up. And I, I know we'll probably get to that, uh, but. I'm pretty sure we're going to screw it up, but we'll get yeah, to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that, that's a genuine fear. But um, the other piece of this is that consciousness, which the relationship of which to intelligence is not at all straightforward. I, you, know, I, you know, I think, for instance, chimps and dogs and probably even cockroaches are conscious, um, which is to say there's, there's something that it's like to be those things. The, the lights are on in some sense. Um, and it's not clear that building super intelligent machines is guaranteed to create conscious machines. I think I think consciousness well, we may have be a no, separate we variable. Have no concept of how consciousness works, right? Well, some some people believe they have they do have a concept, but it's it's just not. It's certainly controversial, and the jury's definitely still out on on how consciousness arises and at what at what level of of information processing uh, uh, it arises. But just just to say that consciousness is. In my view, the thing that gives value to the universe, it is the space in which things can matter. It is the difference. If, if, if there's a difference between excruciating suffering and blissful happiness, 
that is what you're talking about are uh, the contents of consciousness and if if there were no consciousness no matter how intelligent the systems that may exist uh nothing would matter you would just have just kind of blind concatenation of events that to no to no to no effect to no effect in the experience of any actual or possible being um and so you're just you're talking about a universe of, of rocks you know billiard bar, balls colliding you're listening to inside the hive with nick bilton nick it's my favorite time of the week let's talk about goop john it is without question the best time of the week to take a break from talking about god and all those wonderful things, artificial intelligence and whatnot, and to talk about the Goop lifestyle brand, which my wife is obsessed with. Um, Every day I open up my front door and there is another Goop package with lots of amazing products in there. She has these skincare products. She uses vitamin programs, uh, all these natural fragrances and fashion labels and so on and so forth. Um, She's a, I think she may be their number one customer. She's been using Goop Glow Morning Skin Super powder. I actually tasted Love some the Goop other. Love Goop Glow. It's... She looks great too. I, I just saw her the other day. That the Goop Glow makes a huge difference. I tasted it. It's really yummy. I gotta say, it's a it's a really like uh, tastes like a, a, a super tasty vitamin C pack. Um, Krista uh, is always beautiful, but the Goop Glow, new level. It, it, so the uh, uh, one of the things about the Goop brand is that there's um, uh, lots of different things for you to read and learn about travel beauty, style, work, and of course, wellness. Um, I think you've been looking at some of these uh, some of these, these aspects of the site recently. Is that right, John? I learn a lot every day on, on Goop. Yeah. Well, I... Uh, the Goop newsletter reader. I have to say, I love the Goop newsletter. Um, so uh, for listeners out there that want to check this out, want to go buy some products, um, check out some vitamin Cs and some vitamin Es and some skin supplements and so on, you can go to goop.com slash hive. Once again, that is goop.com slash hive hiv sorry i missed that one more time please what it was that was goop.com slash hive i grew up in england and and um it's there's of course religious people there but not like america right. um it is you know america is a country um and i'm sure that there you know you could go to india and other places that you would have similar reactions but america is unique to me in the respect of of how uh how important religion is to the majority of Americans. And yet, you know, you, you said once in a, in a, I don't know, it was a debate or a talk or something like that, that, that you could be um, as good looking as George Clooney, as charismatic as Oprah, as, you know, smart as, as yeah. anyone. Richard Feynman. Yeah, yeah Richard Feynman. Yeah. And, and unless you believe in God, you cannot be a politician who rises up uh, um, in, in the system here. And yet, the thing that um, the thing that I find so perplexing is that people like Mike Pence, for example, uh, I don't believe Donald Trump believes in God. I think it's a complete right. and utter sham, as most of he, the things he does is. But but someone like Mike Pence genuinely seems like he does believe in God and Christianity and so on, and yet uh, he does things and Paul Ryan and so on. They do these things that are so completely against what the whole ethos is behind these religions do you think that these that 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 these folks actually do believe or that they it's just a good it's a good act to put on to get to where they got well no i think most of them do believe i'm sure there are some cynical uh pretenders out there but 
uh, you know, and Trump is certainly one of them. I, I would I would bet a, a lot of money on that. But um, I think most of them do believe they just disagree about what the ethos actually is. I mean, you, you're taking a view of what Jesus really taught or really represented, uh, and it's not the Koch brothers. Uh, <laughs> but they, you know, they, they have managed. You know, the the average Republican Bible thumping politician has managed to rationalize his view of Christianity with a with a different ethos and um, and catering to people who who also you know they, you know most of them are not rich obviously but um, there's just other values have been smuggled into their political worldview that now get kind of have the, the imprimatur of Christianity and. I mean, one being that it's got like a, a counter environmentalism message, say. So, you know, the, the, the God, God made the earth for us, right? He gave He gave to to humankind dominion over all the earth. Uh, so it, this is not, you know, we can do what the hell we want with it, you know. It's, it's, and and that's that just closes the door to the you know whatever Al, whatever Al Gore wants to talk about, um, and. So there's a kind of a quasi-religious attachment to, you know, skepticism about climate change, for instance, and it, it all gets mixed together. It's not like you can go to the Bible and find a real reason not to care about climate change or or to have an opinion one way or the other about it. But you, there's a a, a spirit of kind of an anti-scientific attitude. Certainly, you get with religious fundamentalism a distrust of you know worldly materialist science and a um, a comfort with dogmatism and a kind of uninspected life and a kind of just kind of a creedal, uh, you know, cheerleading, which uh, gets you that kind of politics. But you know, it should be said that on the left, you know, even the the, the totally secular left, you, you we're seeing similar dogmatism and political oh, pathology yeah, as well, too. A, you know. This is not just the right, it's, it's the left, too. And yeah, I think that it's just the different. One of, yeah. one of the problems with the left is they don't see that. <clears throat> you know, the right does. The right says, hey, we can, be, you know, we can be dogmatic and we can have our viewpoints, and so does the left. But I find that so many people I speak to on the left are like, no, we're perfect. You know? I mean, most of the people yeah. on the right feel the same way. Well, uh, the, well it's interesting, that, but in, in the religious context, the word dogma is not a bad word. I mean, dogma, dogma is a, now narrowly speaking, a Catholic uh, word of praise. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, this is, this is, dogmas are good. Wait, know, so it's a reason why you shouldn't have to rethink this stuff. Otherwise, you're going to go to hell. You know? <laughs> and if you masturbate on Sundays, too. Yeah. Um, okay, so with fundamentalism, the thing, so if you, if I were to say to you, I, I think I actually mentioned this to you. We, we, we saw each other at a dinner last year, and I, I, uh, our mutual friend D.A. Wallach was there and I was mm. telling D.A., you know, we, that the way I feel about the love that I feel for my children uh, makes me feel like there's something more to this than, you know, that, and he says, well, that's, that's, you feel that way because that's going to make you protect them as a species. That's what helps us, helps us progress. Mm. And, and oftentimes like clever people who are scientific, you present something to them and they have the response of, well, it helps, helps us the societies, humanity as a species to survive. Mm. However, when you look at the prominence of religion within society and the number of people who have been killed as a result of it and the fundamentalism that goes with it, what do you think that it's like a bug in the system that we believe these things and are willing to die for them? Or is there some sort of, is there some reason that it exists 
that require that that drives people in different faiths to feel the need to kill someone else for that belief. Well, well, the jury's still out on the evolutionary drivers of religion. So you know, there are people who think there's a kind of group selectionist rationale for how religion became a durable part of, of human culture, which is to say that groups that have been religious have outcompeted other groups that, that have, have been less religious. And you can make that argument. You know, group, group selection is problematic as a, as a, as a biological concept, and, and it's, it's almost certainly wrong as generally advertised. But um, I think it's pretty clear that religion is built upon cognitive and emotional architecture that has been selected for by evolution. And it's just, you know, it, it, it's just the, the and, and that, that architecture is also doing other things for us. It's doing science for us, too. I mean, we have this... But you don't see scientists like, I'm going to go out and kill that scientist because they don't believe the belief I believe. So No, no, no but you, you do see, well, you see uh, far more tempered versions of that. I mean, you, you, you see the same, you see similar responses to disagreement. You see um, a kind of, uh, you know, very relaxed tribalism and, you know, apostasy and blasphemy. I mean, these kinds of things, you know, uh, if you say the wrong thing in even a totally secular context and people strongly disagree with you, there's a kind of social opprobrium and, and, you know, you can be exiled from your community if, you're, if your beliefs are, are sufficiently at odds with what other people believe. And all of this gets tuned up massively in the context of a religious cult, right? Uh, but it's the same thing happens. I mean, this is, you know, in my, when I did my PhD work in neuroscience, I was looking at belief versus disbelief and looking to see if if beliefs of in various categories, whether it's it's something as coolly rational as mathematics, or as charged as ethics, or as you know, arguably even more charged as re- religion or politics, um, whether believing something strongly or disbelieving something strongly had a kind of content independent character in the brain, or whether you know th- these it was very different depending on what the subject matter was, and. You know, I, I believe that it's it's pretty clear now that belief is belief is belief. If I tell you something that strikes you as true, the 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 cognitive and you know at bottom neurophysiological operation that that gets you to accept it as true, um, or the, or the acknowledgement that it is true, is the same, independent of the the upstream differences in processing required to get you there. So if I if I give you a, a mathematical equation and have you judge, you know, whether 2 plus 2 equals 4, and you look at it for a second, you say, well, that's true, um, and I give you 2 plus 2 equals 5, and you say, no, that's false, but that difference, I mean, obviously, to judge that is different than judging whether you believe that we're in Los Angeles right now, or whether we're talking into microphones right now, or whether Donald Trump is president of the United States. Um, those are, you have to do, you have to just, fundamentally different operations to remember what you have to remember or do what you have to do to, to judge those statements to be true or false. But the, 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 the acceptance or rejection, once you've done all that, that I think is a content-independent uh, operation. And that feels a certain way. That has that, it begins to 
uh, utilize what you know far more creaturely emotional hardware, which is on a continuum with you know, other psychological acceptance and rejection states. So you know, just like actual, just raw creaturely pleasure or dis- disgust, and it's some of the same areas in the brain that that come online when you when you make these judgments, and so. Um, it's not to go back to, to how religion may have been, you know, have, it may be wired in us. Most of what we're doing, all of what we're doing, obviously has to be done with our brains, and the human brain has evolved within a kind of very, very narrow specification of getting us as apes, as social primates, to successfully spawn and survive long enough so that our progeny can successfully spawn. I mean, that's the logic of evolution. Evolution can't see anything else we're doing. It can't see conversations like this. It can't see the project of building a, a global civilization. It doesn't know anything about democracy or any other institutions. Um, it doesn't know anything about science. Uh, and it doesn't know anything about religion. It, it's just given us these the, the kinds of social... Uh, and cognitive and emotional uh, tools that are being further ramified and changed, frankly, by everything else we're doing at the level of culture. And most of what is good about culture is that it that it, it goes against what we have evolved to do. I mean, we you know, we're we're in the process of outgrowing most of what evolution has put into us by way of you know values, you know, xenophobic. Tribal violence is something we, that we desperately need to outgrow, um, and we will, we will outgrow it by virtue of rational conversations and and designing societies that force us. And to we've done it, it pretty quickly too. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so okay, so when you <clears throat> when you look at um, at these these things I, in, in your where does free will play into all this? You know, in your book. Free will, hmm. the title. Uh, you talk about this research um, where we kind of make our subconscious makes decisions before we make decisions, right? And um, can you talk a little bit about how this all works? Because you'll do it better than I will. Yeah. Well, you know, so free will is interesting as a topic because it is it's one of the most controversial topics I ever touch. So it's the thing that when you, when you tell people they don't have it or it's not what it seems, yeah. uh, they either find that incredibly interesting it's or, or offensive. Yeah. I mean, so like, <laughs> this is, this is something that really worries people. I don't think it needs to, it's, it's surprising to me that people find it this, uh, provocative. Uh, but and religion is one reason why most people find it provocative, because every religion, or you know, certainly the, the Abrahamic religions, insist upon this idea that, that you know, the human soul is is free to choose, uh, and it's free to choose whether it believes in God, and that choice is the most important choice anyone ever makes, and human mor- morality is predicated on choices just like that, and everyone is the true author of their of their thoughts and actions and their belief. Now, none of that makes any sense. I mean, it just makes no sense objectively in a, in a third person sense. When you talk about how the world works, it makes no sense when you talk about how brains work. And it, and 
Ironically, it makes no sense when you talk about human subjectivity, when you talk about what it's like to be you in each moment. And this is, and this is what is so strange about this conversation or this topic. Most people think that the problem is that we have this experience of free will. This, I mean, if, if we know anything, we know that we have it. And yet it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, to map this experience onto the world as we know it to be. So explain. Yeah. So you talk. So you. So you talk about. So people think they have this this thing called free will, that they are the true authors of their thoughts and actions. That you can really decide. You know what to have for lunch, uh, and um, yet when you look at, for instance, your brain, your brain is is you know, there's the upstream of whatever you could be conscious of as you know as you are making the decision there are neurophysiological events that you're not conscious of which are delivering the decision to consciousness and we know this experimentally but we know this even even before we had a neuroscience people worried about this and and, and we knew this true just physically i mean you, no one made themselves you know you didn't pick your genes you didn't pick your parents you didn't pick the world into which you were born you have zero control over any of those things. You have zero control over the inputs to your nervous system from the moment you were conceived till, till now that sculpted your nervous system and, and put your brain in precisely the state it's in now. And yet, we know that you will do what you do in each subsequent moment by virtue of the state your brain is in in each prior moment. And even if you don't believe that, even if you think that there's an immortal soul somehow integrated with the clockwork here. You didn't pick your soul. You know, you can't... How much credit can you take for not having the soul of Ted Bundy? But but you, you didn't pick your soul, but just because you didn't pick your soul doesn't... I mean... But you didn't pick anything about it. I mean, all of the defects that it has or doesn't have are not things you picked. But what if what if, if that soul is there for us to, to make it better? And that, okay. that well, it's the, a challenge that we have on this planet. Uh, well, in some sense that's true. So yeah, we all have the challenge of making our lives better and our minds better and but our relationships better. But isn't there some free will within there? Well, no, because you have exactly the tools you have in this moment to do that. And if I say something now, and this is, a, this, I mean, the idea that belief is a matter of free choice is also completely insane because if ever there were a circumstance that did not demonstrate free will, it's on, the, it's on this subject of belief. If I say something that convinces you, you, know, you let, let's say you believe in free will, and I, and I convince you that you're wrong, right? Think of what that experience is like. Like you, you, are, you, you have one belief, and that you're, then you're confronted with evidence and argument that bowls you over, that, that changes what you think. And, you, and this is, you're helpless in this process. You can resist it, but you, you're, it, it, what, the, the reality is, is that beliefs are contagious, Ideas are contagious. Good ideas spread, and this is the this is the condition in in which it's the antithesis of, of free will. You are, is, I mean, just just take about think of it in terms of you know mathematical proof. It's like you you led you're led down the steps of a proof to a terminus that you didn't pick and cannot resist if you are being rational. The, the rationality is the quintessence of having zero freedom, zero. Rationality is the you are a slave to reason if you're being rational, because you're being led. It's like two plus two plus two equals, 
right? There is no freedom in that. Nor would, nor would you want freedom in that. It's only good if you can't, if you follow the point to, but, okay, it, so it's but terminus. you chose to come here today to sit down and have a conversation with me. Is, was, that, was that your choice? Or was that your subconscious? Or was that some neuron in your little toe that told you? Like, what was, what is, how does that play well, out? Well, so the, there is the, so I, got, I should kind of back up and close the door to a few misconceptions here, which will be arising in the mind of, of many of our listeners who haven't thought about this. So to say all of this, to say that free will is an illusion, is not to say that choices don't matter or that efforts don't matter or that willpower doesn't matter. So all of those conventional things exist in the sense that you can't, you can't just wait around to see what happens. That would also be a choice. Right? You can't, if you just stay in bed and say, well, I'm just going to see what happens to me, very soon you will confront the fact that staying in bed is hard. You'll be, first of all, you'll, you'll, you want other things out of life, right? Your desires and intentions are going to begin to arise. You, you'll have to go to the bathroom. You'll get hungry. You know, you'll, you'll realize your life is unraveling. You need to make some phone calls or you need to, to check your email. And to resist all of that will also take a kind of effort. And so, so there is no place to stand where you're doing nothing. You're constantly making choices and... Um, but you're but you're not but, making them. But they're just arising. So I mean, to get so just to think of what the alternative would be here. Um, I mean, it's just a simple subjective experiment you can perform. So if I asked you to think of a city, think of any city. Uh, San Francisco. Okay. So. And we'll get, let's do this a couple of times, and you can you can see what this is like, and our listeners can follow along. So think of another city, not not New San York City. Okay. And now just pay, just pay attention to what the, the subjectively what the experience is, is like. So think of you know, those are those are the wrong cities. Think of another city. Uh, Cleveland. Okay. So let's look for free will in this circumstance because if it's not here, this is it's not anywhere. I mean, this is the the ultimate case where you are completely unconstrained you know you no one had a, held a gun to your head you were free to think you were free, you could take I as long as you want that sam's not holding a gun yeah. to my head and you there's no time limit uh you can go back and forth as long as you want you had all the cities in the world to think of and you just freely picked the ones that you picked now uh, so there are hundreds of cities that you could have thought of, uh, perhaps thousands, and you only know the names of some subset of, of the thousands. Uh, so you couldn't, you, you were not free to think of the ones that you could not name, right? So that's, let's close the door to those. That, that, there's no freedom there. Um, if, uh, but what about the ones I could have named? So you have this, the set of all the cities you could have named, right? And only a very small subset of those occurred to you. Right? So the, the, the experience was very much, very likely like a, a few candidates began, began to kind of percolate on the, the, the margins of consciousness. And you, there might have been some back and forth between them. You might have thought of one and then thought, oh, not that one, or that, you know, that's embarrassing, or some, some reason why you didn't want to say that once. So like oh, there's this kind of percolation of, of motives and editing happening. Uh, and then, but one gets promoted, and you go with that one. So you know, Cleveland, 
right? So you might have had Sacramento there, but then but then Cleveland uh, became you know the, the one you that you actually articulated. Now I would say to you that subjectively, there is zero evidence of free will there. Right? That that it's that that experience is completely compatible with absolute determinism. I'm literally some evil genius in the next room just typing into your brain these cities because you are in no position to know why you didn't think of all the other cities that you could have thought of, right? So you know that Moscow is a city, right? You know it as no as 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 much as you know anything, right? And yet you didn't think of Moscow, right? Or if you did, you didn't say it. But there, so there's some other city Right, that you that you could have thought of, that you know. But I can tell you the thought process of how I got to those cities. Well, no, but no, but you can't. But so very likely that thought process would be wrong. But you can't, even if it were right, you can't tell me why that thought process initiated itself and not some other thought process. You can't, you can't tell me because because you could have thought of of you know Kingston, Jamaica, right, and you would have some rationale for why you thought of that, right? You can't if you if you saw a movie yesterday that mentioned Cleveland. Right, mm-hmm. which is the proximate cause of your saying Cleveland now, you can't explain why it had that influence or not, or not some other influence. It might have, it could have had the opposite influence. It could have said, it could have been the reasons why you didn't say Cleveland, right? Because I, I'm not going to be manipulated by the last movie I saw, right? And <laughs> you, you can't explain any of these things that are arising in consciousness, and all they do is arise. They arise every bit as much as if I were whispering in your ear, Cleveland. Right, I mean, because you can't think a thought before you think it. So, so you're saying that my subconscious was the thing that told my conscious self Cleveland. Well, I'm just I'm saying that these things are being pushed forward into consciousness without any author. I mean, so you, it, it, certainly you you as the conscious witness of your inner life, as the as the subject, as the one who feels he has free will, who feels he's free to choose is not, in fact, choosing. You are merely witnessing a choice that is being made by your brain, I mean, in this case. And at, at the, the consciousness is the last to know what's coming here. And I, mean, and I say this as someone who thinks consciousness is the, the, the most important thing in the universe. But in terms of the phenomenology of what it's like to choose, what it's like to, to think thoughts, they just come. So what's the point? Well, the point is, well, it's, there are many points here. What, one is that... The illusion of free will and, and people's misunderstanding of it uh, and their anchoring of their no, ethics. No, I mean, to, like, what's the point of us being here if we don't have the decisions to make that while we're here? Like, well, well, no, but but none of this negates the power of everything we do and don't do, and 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 the importance of making the right choices. But it's just that we're not making choices in the way that we assume. But but you you you're, but there's no question your life can be completely derailed by bad choices, uh, and uh, utterly improved by good ones, and that the differences matter. And, and, and so this, is, this comes back to me saying you can't just wait around to see what happens to you, uh, because that would just be a disastrous choice. You, you have to do—if if you want to get any result in life that is good and, and hard-won, it requires that you do the things that, that are the necessary precursors to getting that result. I mean, if you want to learn French— you have to study French. You have to surround yourself with people who speak French. You have to go to France. You have to. It's not just going to happen to you. And so it is with, with almost anything else that's worth doing. You have to do the things uh, that are required to, to change your, your 
mind and your life in the, in the way to, to bring about that result. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So I want to take a brief break from talking to Sam about this topic, and which is making my head spin and also making me a little hungry, and bring in John Kelly. Uh, John, you have been eating uh, lately with Freshly, is that right? Uh, what do you think of it? Well, Nick, the reason we haven't talked in a week is because all I've been doing is eating Freshly recipes. I love it. Delicious, timely, good for you. Makes me feel great. Chef-crafted options. Love the buffalo chicken. Love the I, wait, chicken wait, wait, parm. I love the buffalo chicken. I, it's my favorite one. I am obsessed with Freshly. We eat uh, Freshly uh, like four or five nights a week in our house, and the buffalo chicken is without a doubt my famous uh, favorite one. The chicken parm is incredible too. There's some great veggie options. I um, I have to say the uh, the meals are so simple, so tasty. Uh, it's it's been a game changer in our house because you know we're busy. We have a couple of kids. Lots of stuff going on, things I have to file to you, and uh, you know I'm really a huge fan. Well, i got to tell you, there's nothing better than knowing that no matter what happens in my day, I have a chef-cooked dinner waiting for me when I get home. Well, listeners of Inside the Hive are, um, are going to be able to, to experience that too. Um, Freshly is offering a, uh, a special $25 off your first order for six chef-cooked dinners. Plus free shipping by going to freshly.com slash hive. That's freshly, F-R-E-S-H-L-Y dot com slash hive. That's H-I-V-E. Okay, so when, I, when you talk about this stuff and, and you talk about all of, when you look at all these things together that we're talking about, <clears throat> and there's the complication, it is so, so utterly mind-boggling that there are seven billion of us on this earth that are doing that these things are all playing into them my decision to 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 go to cleveland or for you to come here or Mm -hmm. for this person to kill that person or all these things that may happen um or this relationship and this birth and 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 that it's almost like the most complicated computer program you could ever imagine writing um and uh doesn't that make you question that maybe there's some larger purpose to it? Well, no, because all, all of this is true, to, but with a much more limited spectrum of effects of every other species, right? So, you know, the chimpanzees are doing what they're doing. The birds are doing what they're doing. Uh, they're, they have very complicated lives, and they, you know, they, they experience a range of pain and pleasure, and they're struggling, and, I mean, it's a... It's a Shakespearean ordeal that they're all going through is just uh, not at all mediated or expanded by language. I mean, language is is one of the largest variables here. You wouldn't, when looking at the natural world, you wouldn't be tempted to say, oh, this must have some kind of higher, deeper, more magical purpose to it. Because first of all, 99% of the species that have ever existed have been canceled by by going extinct, uh, I mean, this, this is, is an abattoir, right? I mean, it would just like I me mean, just look at you watch a few nature videos where a gazelle is born and takes four steps only to get ripped apart by wild dogs. It's like this is not <laughs> you know, this is not written by uh, uh, an author whose desire was to uplift us, uh, you know, spiritually uh, and ethically, uh, and yet we have this opportunity to create experiences that can be 
literally unimaginably But there's an argument to say profound. that those, that, those, that the, the wild dogs and the, and the, you know, the, the children dying and the, this, that, and the other serve a purpose to, sh- to, to balance out the universe in the respect of, you know, if we didn't die... But this, this, be- this rock is going to get swallowed by the sun. I mean, there's no balancing <laughs> out. You know, it's, this is just going to end in fire and ice, you know? Um, and we may, may already be there with the Trump administration. Um, all right, I know you have a, a limited amount of time, uh, so I want to just kind of uh, jump to one other thing since uh-huh. we figured out the reason why we're not here. Right. Um, so uh, we are on this path with technology where we are arguably going to create some sort of artificial intelligence. Um, a lot of people think of artificial intelligence as, as a a version of a human, and I think that that's the wrong way to think about it. And I think that, um, <clears throat> and I've used this analogy before, but when you think of a uh, of humans creating things that fly, airplanes don't flap their wings. Right. They have engines um, and take 300 people in a tube across the sky at 500 miles an hour. Um, submarines don't swim like fish, although there are roboticists working on those, but um, they are, you know, the same kind of thing under underwater. What do you think? Do you what role is all of this understanding going to play into the creation of artificial intelligence? And what do you think it's going to look like? Do you think it's going to look like a version of us in some respect, with some sort of? Does it have to have a subconscious and consciousness? When you talk about free will, will AI have to have no? choice like how mm. does this all play into the future of, of what we're building well it, it, just to to connect it to the the conversation we're ju- we were just having about free will no one, it's interesting to point out that no one will be tempted to say that a robot has free will however complicated and and competent the robot <laughs> I mean, so you, you have a robot that is better at playing chess than any human being will ever be uh, and then you add to it other capacities, right? Now it's better at playing Go than any human will ever be, but it will soon be better at speech recognition, uh, and it's probably already better at facial recognition than any human is. And you just keep adding capacities, every capacity we care about. Eventually you're going to get something that is superhuman in its capacities, and yet because we know how we built it, the idea that it has free will... Is, I mean, you're just going to have to change what you mean by free will. It's not, it's not what most people think they have, which is that they really are... Um, I mean, most, most people feel that if, if you rewound the movie of their, their lives, you put the universe back into the state it was in a moment ago, they could have done something differently than they did. Uh, and that, that's just, there's just no reason, no physical reason to think that that's untrue. And as I you know, tried to point out, there's no subjective reason to think that that's true. Um, uh, uh, so, so I mean, th- which is to say that you would pick Cleveland a trillion times in a row if we reversed the universe to that to the state your brain was in precisely in that moment, uh, and that has you know we can table this topic, but that has moral considerations because our, you know, our justice system, the whole notion of retribution and punishment that people really deserve to rot in prison for the rest well, of their lives. That, that's interesting. It's, you say that like you, in the beginning of your free will book, you said you tell the story of this diabolical story of these two men that <clears throat> raped and murdered these 
his yeah. family and and um and you point out that um that the you know the things that they had experienced in their life prior to that were things that led to those decisions even though they weren't they could have not been decisions how come this has never been like used in court to say well, oh, well i didn't yeah, do well, that no no people do try that but it it's a again it's not that everyone's not guilty by reason of insanity it's that the idea that anyone really deserves to be who they are to be punished for who they are doesn't make any ethical sense because it's just to just fast forward a few years and imagine we have a cure for psychopathy. You know, so there are these, there really are evil people out there who are yeah. psychopaths who like to hurt people and they, they don't feel compassion and they're dangerous and we should lock them up. Some I'm not, of them, are, some of them know, are the president of the United right, States. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, let's lock them up. Um, but there are, you know, there are people who should be killed. I mean, I'm, I'm not a pacifist. I think we, we should, you know, you, you have the right to self-defense. It's only prudent to, to kill someone who's trying to kill you. And um, so it, it's a, uh, this is not, we should just empty the jails argument. But just imagine what it would be like to have a cure for evil. I mean, we, so we totally understand psychopathy. We understand exactly what happens in brains to make, you know, otherwise normal 13-year-olds become diabolical murderers when they're 23-year-olds. Um, we understand the genes. We understand the, the neurotransmitters. And we can, as luck would have it, just deliver a pill that solves the problem. So that, such that every psychopath is sitting on death row, when you give them this pill, they say, oh, my God, I cannot believe who I was and what I've done. I feel terrible. But, man, I feel, I feel so much better now. I mean, I don't want to do any of those things. I just want to pay back to society and figure out how to help the, the, the families of the people I, I harmed. Uh, uh, and I just feel so unlucky to have been who I was, and now I feel so lucky that science has given us this, this remedy. Okay. If that were the situation, if evil became like diabetes, where like you, it was a medical problem with a treatment, right? Uh, we wouldn't think that people should be rotting in prison because they really deserve what they what was coming to them, right? Mm. We would think we have we now have figured out the solution to the actual problem, which is, you know, we have a bunch of malfunctioning robots over here that that need to be fixed. Um, now, I'm not saying we will uh, get a cure for human evil, but we, we we very likely will. I mean, it's not it's it's you know, well, who knows? Um, but to, to now to make the lateral move to robots. Clearly, there'll be a cure for evil robots, right? Which is, you know, not to build them. I mean, there's some principle by which you could build an evil robot, and there's principle by which you could. Well, I think that as technology has technology has proven in the past couple of years that there are unintended consequences for every technology that we build, and we may not know if the robot we are building, especially if it's AI, where we're saying, you know, there's the classic the classic case of okay, you tell an AI, go cure cancer. <clears throat> the AI comes back and it says, give everyone on earth this blue pill and it will cure cancer. So you give everyone on earth the blue pill and 10% of society are dead the next day. And you say, what the fuck? You're supposed to cure cancer. Mm-hmm. And it said, I did. I got rid of all the people who have the genes of the cancer gene. Um, we don't know if we're going to create AI that we may be thinking, we may think it's going to do good, but it's going to end up doing evil, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's a genuine concern. It's something I, I spoke about the last time I gave a TED talk, um, and it's just increasingly uh, a topic of interest to people. I mean, there, there are people, it should be said, who are smart, who don't think 
it's as big a problem as I do, but I'm on the side of, of people like Stephen Hawking and Max Tegmark and Elon Musk and, you know, uh, famous people who've been making uh, more and more alarm noises about how, how little resources we're putting into solving this, what's now called the alignment problem or the control problem. Uh, the, the, the second phrase is from Nick Bostrom's book, Super Intelligence, which, which was very formative in, yep. in many people's opinion here. Uh, and it's, it's, it can sound crazy, but if you just, I mean, there's just a few short steps to taking this problem seriously, which is, the first is, when you are talking about building AI, you're talking about building machines that are competent, I mean, that, that, that can do things, that can solve, uh, that can meet their goals in a variety of contexts. Uh, and as you say, there are unintended consequences in building increasingly powerful machines that can meet goals, even goals which you know, on paper look unambiguously good, like cure cancer. Right. So, and if you don't, if you don't anticipate all of the ways in which increasingly flexible, powerful, creative minds really can try to meet their goals uh, by forming instrumental goals that you haven't anticipated, right? Like, again, the, the analogy to evolution is interesting because just as evolution can't see what we're doing, I mean, evolution has programmed us to meet some very specific goals. And only those goals, right? Evolution just told us with its code to procreate, procreate right? Don't die until you procreate and then die try, die whenever try, you want. Try to make you know? sure that things live until they can survive on their own and then you can die. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, that's it, right? And uh, we have been programmed to do that. And that's all evolution can see. And look what all the other stuff we're doing. And we're doing things like becoming abstinent or, 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 or practicing birth control, but right? Which is, which is antithetical yeah. to the programming. And yet it is, in some sense, a consequence of the programming. I mean, somehow we got here, got to this place where we're doing so much more than care about procreating. And also we are, by creating robots with artificial intelligence, we could be creating the, thing, the very thing that stops us from procreating. But but even more importantly, we could be creating things that have minds that are unimaginably deeper or just stranger than we can imagine, and therefore we'll begin to do things that we can't imagine. We'll begin to explore the domain of of possible intelligence and creativity and knowledge acquisition uh, that we haven't explored ourselves. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it will be a good thing if it can remain tethered to our interests, which is to say aligned with our interests. So that you can build, I mean, everyone would or should want a perfect genie, you know, or a perfect oracle, right? Something like, you know, a machine which can answer any question you put to it in a way that only a civilization working for a thousand years could, Right. I mean, just imagine, like, like, imagine if in your phone you had an advanced, functionally an advanced civilization that could spend a thousand years working on any problem you gave it, uh, and that would take thirty seconds, right, or less. That's that's the what certainly seems to be possible when you're talking about 
the continuum of possible intelligence. Because we, we tend not to think about this, but we, we tend to think that we're somewhere near the, the summit of intelligence. We're nowhere There's near no it. reason to think that at all. I yeah. mean, we, we stand in relation to whatever is possible the way, you know, the example I used in my TED Talk, uh, the way a chicken stands in relation to us. Uh, and when you look at what a chicken's capable of doing, it's not much. <laughs> and and it, it clearly is completely clueless as to the situation it's actually in and, and what we're up to, you know, by, you know, the frame, by framing that situation. And we seem very likely to build machines that, if everything goes well for us, that will stand in that relation to us uh, cognitively and by, you know, by, by virtue of, of just, if, if by no other variable, by the speed of their processing. I mean, there's a superintelligence that comes just by virtue of speed. I mean, just imagine we, we couldn't build anything smarter than ourselves, but we just built something that was faster, you know, a million times faster than ourselves, which is what we would very likely build if you just compare just the, the substrate. I mean, the difference between bio, having a computer made of meat and a computer made of, of uh, silicon, you, you have a, a, a million-fold advantage in processing speed. So that is like how you get you know, 10 smart people in a room together talking a million times faster than we can talk thinking a million times faster than we can think, you know, that's 20,000 years of progress in a week, right? So now how do we, how do we interact with a mind that's making that kind of progress? Uh, we'll, we'll have to find out, and if it's not aligned with our interests, if it's not the kind of system where we can say, oh, no, that's not what we meant, right? You know, you know don't do that thing that you just did. Um, do the thing we want you to do, even though we are... Uh, so, I mean, we stand in relation to you the way, you know, chickens stand in relation to us. I mean, imagine if we had been invented by, I mean, the, the better analogy here is dogs. This is a, uh, a somewhat strained argument. But I would just imagine that, imagine if dogs had invented us, right? And, and there's, there's some evidence that they might have in the sense that, you know, we, we spend an inordinate amount of resources they, they taking care of them. They screw because we have to give them the food and they don't get the, the treat unless they do the trick. Right, yeah. so. But still, I mean, they're, they're making out much better than wild True. dogs did. Yeah. Uh, you know, or, or wolves did. <clears throat> Take me did. for a walk, yeah. feed me. Yeah, and just, you know, we buy them blankets and mattresses and, you know, we, you know, we <laughs> blog about them. I mean, it's, it's insane. <laughs> Uh, and it's 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 really heartfelt. I mean, people yeah. you know people love their dogs more than they love anyone else in their lives, practically. Um, so uh, it's a it's good for dogs. And so uh, just imagine if dogs had engineered us to be this way. Well, that's all great now, but the truth is we have so many other interests that dogs know nothing about. And uh, if it ever became apparent that. You know, there was some, you know, xenovirus jumping from dogs to people that was going to annihilate the human race. Uh, we would just kill, kill all the, the dogs, dogs, like yeah. in a night, without explanation. All of a sudden, there'd be a dog holocaust, and the dogs would have no way of foreseeing this. And, and that's the situation we could be in with respect to AI. It's not that we are going to, it's not that AI will become spontaneously malevolent. It's not, it's not a Terminator scenario. It's just that you could imagine a... Again, the, 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 the barrier here is in being able to imagine that intelligence and mind and, and creativity is really substrate independent. And most people, are, are, are start, most people have as their default assumption that 
there's something magical about being a monkey, right? Or having having a biological computer. And that once you start building this in, in, on the internet or in robots, it can't really develop a life or creativity or intention of its own. There's no reason to think that there's no, I mean, that's, that is magical thinking with respect to information processing. There's every reason, reason to think that intelligence or leave consciousness aside. I mean, maybe the lights won't be on in these machines, but there's every reason to think that intelligence is just a matter of information processing and that information processing is substrate independent. But one of the big problems is, you know, you and I can sit here and have this conversation and Elon and Nick Bostrom and all these folks and even putting aside people like Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Page that are not worried about, and they should be the most worried, but yeah. are, that are not worried about about the the way AI could go rogue and, and, and go to your dog analogy, kill us all. But... But you've got, we are stuck in a situation where you have bad actors in the world, like Putin, who are going to build it anyway. And so mm-hmm. we almost don't have a choice but to move forward on this conveyor belt without any free will about the conversation uh, and build these things because they're going to get built anyway. And yeah. and so how do we how do we do that? How do we kind of... Should we be? It, it, will AI in the future be a defense, like, a, like a you know, almost like a um, we build nukes to stop other people from building nukes? I mean, how do you think this is kind of going to play out? Yeah, well, I, I think the main concern is that the first people, the first company, the first society to build it will build it badly, which is to say, unsafely, not aligned with our interests. And that it'll get it will get away from us. So that the least concerning thing is that bad people will use totally aligned AI in bad ways, right? The AI they have full control over, and you just you know, <clears throat> as luck would have it, you know, the, a, a Hitler got his hands on AI and, and uh, harmed everyone else. That's certainly possible, but that's almost that's almost. Uh, that's a hopeful circumstance. I mean, that, that's talking. Yeah. The, the, the AI alignment problem has been solved, and it just is just by dint of bad luck, bad people got it first. Um, I think the, the the concern is much deeper, which is that it's it's going to be harder to build safe AI than unsafe AI, and we're in an arms race that is incentivizing speed, and and that's just disastrous. Uh, and we are in an arms race, and as you say, we are going to build it because it is, you know, insofar as we can get our hands around more intelligence, it is the most valuable thing we have. And yes, and to answer your question, AI, you know, good AI or aligned AI would be an antidote to bad AI. I uh, say so we'll be using AIs to fight AIs uh, at some point, but. Uh, it's, it's not a hopeful scenario. I mean, the arms race, we have to f- figure out how to step out of the logic of an arms race. I think that is that is mission critical and really the first order of business. We need transparency. We need, we need all of the people who are closest to the end zone to begin collaborating on, on solving the alignment problem. We need a political commitment 
to spreading the wealth as quickly as we can so that you don't have a winner take all scenario and yep. and you know so you're not having multi trillion uh, valuations in companies that that begin to edge toward the the, the finish line first, uh, and you know they're bankrupting everyone else uh, because it's just incentivizing all the wrong on things. Its way to happening, and you know, I mean, also the you know the richest three people in the world have the same amount of wealth as the bottom three point six billion. Yeah. You know. Well, okay. So so last question, um, uh, and I'll I'll start with an anecdote. Um, I have. Uh, a friend who was talking to Larry Page, they were having a yeah. conversation and they were talking about AI and robots and <clears throat> what happens if the AI becomes smarter and they distinguish humanity and, and so on and so forth. And Larry Page's response was... Let me guess, let me guess. We won't mind when we're all robots. <laughs> it was pretty much along that lines. And the person said, um, but that's what about, you know, what about us? And, he, and Larry Page's response was, you're being speciest. Right. Um, by uh, and I've heard this from a couple of people that he said this um, right. that that if we build a better species, then they should survive. Or if um, if we turn ourselves into a better species, then that's what we should be. Um, do you think that we are going to, in the direction that we are heading, end up building a technology or? destroying this rock that you know we're on and inevitably uh ending humanity or do you, are you hopeful that we will figure it out well first let me say that the, the that statement that you're being species you're being speciesist or you're these these new beings are by definition more important than we are by virtue of their their increased competence uh, and increased intelligence that makes absolutely no sense unless these are conscious beings, right? right. So if the lights are not on, right? If we've built a, a generation of of godlike intelligences, that it's nothing for which it is nothing that it's like to be, right? If you could trade places with them, it would be exactly like trading places with a toaster, right? Uh, which is to say, the lights would go off. Well, then we have we have if they win, you know, if they if they trample us and our interests and snuff us out. It's a bad thing if anything is a bad thing because you're talking about turning the lights out in the universe, right? Or at least our part of the universe. Um, so uh, they would only be more important than us if, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm willing to go here. I, I don't know that we would should be eager to engineer this necessarily, but our machines, or the, the, the machines of the future will be more important than us if they're conscious and... They have a range of experience that is more important, that matters more than, than, than our range of experience. So if they have more you know, beautiful dreams and, and deeper relationships and are more creative and insightful and you know, tell better jokes and laugh harder, uh, then I would have to grant that they're more important than us because I think we're more important than chimps. Right? And chimps are more important than, than mice. And mice are more important than cockroaches in the sense that the only thing that can matter is is being expanded uh, and and uh, elaborated in each one of those jumps, and it's, you're talking about the conscious experience. Uh, but if they're not conscious, then we're just we're just talking about dangerous machines, right? Which are you know dangerous to our interests, which and 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 the machines have no interests. Uh, 
Um, so will we get it right? I have no idea. I just think it, it, it's just clear that we this is a, an increasingly important problem to solve, and it's not going to go away. And, and the time frame, the people who argue that, I mean, that the, so they're, they're famous uh, utterances which stand as a reason not to worry about any of these things. And they, they seem to always reference the time horizon. And so you know, one uh, AI researcher has said uh, that worrying about AI run amok is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars, right? It's just, it's just totally premature. Uh, but that only makes sense on the assumption that we know how long we have, we know how long it's going to take to build superintelligent AI, and we know how long it will take to figure out how to do it safely, and that we have enough time. Well, and then that argument is complete and utter bullshit because I remember when we first, I was at the New York Times, and John Markoff had written the first story ever about driverless cars at Google. And I remember reading the story and eventually working on some driverless car uh, columns and stories myself. And, and the prediction was, oh, you know, this is like five years ago or something like that. The prediction was it'll be here in 30 to 50 years. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's five years later and, and they, you go to San Francisco, you're going to see some driverless cars zipping around or Detroit or other places like that. And, and the speed with which technology, if you look at any graph showing you know, the adoption rate of technology and the speed with which we perfected it, you know, it took the telephone 100 years or electricity 90 or, you know, it's taken the smartphone 10, not yeah. even. Uh, and I think that, w- that with AI, those predictions are just, they're like an accordion just being pushed together. Yeah. And as uh, Eliezer Yudkowsky, who's a uh, researcher in this area, <clears throat> said on my podcast like two weeks ago, even the people closest to doing the work historically have been just fantastically bad at predicting when these breakthroughs will happen. So it's like, you know, the, the Wright brothers were wrong about when, you know, heavier-than-air flight would happen by, by some enormous factor. And the people who were, you know, the physicists who were going to give us the nuclear chain reaction were completely wrong about how long it would take to, to or if ever this was going to be possible to do. Um, so it's just the people who are at the cusp of, of these breakthroughs are often blindsided by how quickly gains are made. Uh, but again, it's, it's a total fallacy to argue for the, the time point at all because it, it, we, we simply do not know how long it would take us to do this safely. And we know the incentives are all wrong currently. I mean, we, just, we know we're in an arms race. We know that doing it safely takes more thought than doing it unsafely and that there's a price to be paid for, for spending the time to, to, to do that thought. Uh, so it's, um, we have a lot to figure out. And forget, I mean, the other thing, this is something I, I talk about in, the, in this TED Talk, uh, even the best case scenario, even if we were handed the perfectly obedient, utterly useful AI, just you know, God comes down and says, here it is, Here's the, the, here, I've solved your problem. Handed that today, it would cause total economic and political chaos yeah. in our world. I mean, yeah. we, 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 are, we are not prepared to deal with that. We're not prepared to deal with that level of wealth creation. We're not prepared to deal with the, the asymmetry of it just arising someplace and not every place all at once. You know, if, if, Facebook, if Facebook creates it tomorrow, they will have created an engine of wealth creation and an engine of asymmetry 
unlike the world has ever seen. I and mean, we're talking about something that can turn the, the lights out in China, right? You know, so what, what's, what would it be rational for the Chinese to do if we suddenly had, if we won the winner-take-all scenario tomorrow? Well, you know, they should nuke us as fast as they can if, if you know, given the, the political realities of our world. Um, or certainly it's, it's plausible that they might think that, or it's plausible that Russia might think that, or to say nothing of North Korea. So we're not prepared even for the best case scenario. And that's, that's what's humbling here. It's funny. Every time I do this podcast with someone that we usually end at this point. So uh, <laughs> despair, <laughs> despair, yeah. but hopefully yeah. we will figure it out and, yeah. and that we will, you might be the problem. We- <laughs> <laughs> Um, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat today. Um, just for our listeners that want to want to hear more, which book should they go listen to first or read first? Uh, uh, probably Waking Up, or, or they could listen to my podcast by that name. I'm, actually, there's a third Waking Up thing now. I, I've created uh, what I'm calling the Waking Up Book Club in this fair city of ours, Los Angeles. And the first event is going to be at the Dolby Theater with Steven Pinker, uh, next month, uh, March fourteenth. Where can people get tickets? Um, well, that, that's Ticketmaster, but it, you, you know my website has all the information, and I'll be doing it every other month. I think I'm going to move to the the Cleveland th- next. Th- no, no, no. <laughs> it's going to be. It's all, these are all in LA, so this is going to be the the Dolby first, and then in May I'll do an event with um, Antonio Damasio at the the theater, the Ace Hotel downtown, uh, and it's just the, the goal is to bring interesting conversation at, you know, to some degree, some kind of surprising scale with some regularity in this town. And, and uh, I'll be helping various authors launch their new books. And uh, that's why it's a book club. And, and cool. it, it will also be a live podcast and, you know, ultimately released on, <clears throat> on my I'm, podcast. I'm all for any kind of book club. So great. Yeah. Yeah. No, reading is, is worth maintaining as a, as a pastime. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much again, Sam, for uh, for coming out. It's been great. Yeah, pleasure. Pleasure. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So I want to welcome John Kelly to the show. Um, after hearing that from Sam Harris, I think uh, part of me kind of hopes that the AI does take over the world and destroy humanity because they might do a better job than we're doing right now. What do you think, it, John? It's a six of one, half a dozen of the other sort of situation. <laughs> but um, your sort of um, uh, AI apocalypse uh, conversation, which I've had with you a number of times, it just gets scarier and scarier every time. And I feel like it is true that um, it's becoming unclear what is more terrifying, the robots or the people. And that, that's actually Silicon Valley's best argument for replacing all of us is that it, it can't get any worse than, than what's on Earth right now, right? <clears throat> well, I think I think uh, you know. Th- th- I just this week has been um, it's it's really astounding how how these things happen. You know, especially kind of when you think about this conversation that I just had with Sam and and the uh, the events in Parkland, Florida, and the way that that politicians, specifically NRA backed politicians, specifically Republicans. Um, <clears throat> the way they respond to these things with this bullshit, you know, prayers and thoughts and all that other nonsense that really means absolutely nothing. And, it, you know, is even more relevant when you kind of put it into context with what Sam's talking about with the fact that there, you know, probably is no God and no reason we're here other than the fact that we're just kind of these things on, on earth with the lights on. Um, but, uh, uh, I don't know. I mean... It's interesting because every 
every podcast usually ends at this a potential <laughs> apocalyptic moment. And, and uh, this is like one of those one times where I was like, eh, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. Well, I mean, I, I feel like it's um, the, the gun control issue is so sticky, right? Because for some reason, this has become uh, how we define freedom. And in reality, you know, the, the NRA's constituents are largely um, sort of hunter, fisherman, weekender types. It's not, um, it's not all militia members and free weekend patriot people and and um, and Joe Manchin supporters. I, it's really, it's it's very discordant with the 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 politicians that the group helps raise money for. Um, and it does seem like there's actually this this sort of split between. You know the Marco Rubios of the world, who who seem to, you know, know have a kind of playbook for how to treat these events, um, whereby they they tweet a biblical verse or or try and uh, de-emphasize the the event of the shooting itself, and and rather try and you know obfuscate and move us on to some sort of period of healing, and the people who actually are you know are, are donating to to the NRA and and and, uh, and and support the group, you know the people who believe in the NRA are not buying AR-15s, right? Uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's a fantasy. Um, and it's such yeah. a strange, bizarre sticking point that, um, you know, I was reading a number of stories today, uh, particularly about um, how little has been done since Sandy Hook to, to really, you know, significantly influence gun legislation. And, and of course, there are many people who will point out that there have been nominal steps forward, and there have... But the idea that a 19-year-old can go into a store in Florida and legally purchase an AR-15 no, is, a 19 is year old who a 19-year-old or an 18-year-old in high school, that, that is, you know. But Nick, Nick, that's not even the point. Anyone, any, you know, anyone. Yeah. You, you, you wrote about this uh, on The Hive this week, and you made a very reasonable point that Britain, which used to be, you know, the, probably the, the, the most sane country in the world, at least before Brexit. Well, why don't you, you tell the story? You, you grew up there. Well, no, I mean, I grew up, it's, it's fascinating because I went to school in Parkland, Florida. I went to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. It, the school opened in 1990. I was there in 91 from, to 95. And, and um, <clears throat> it was a big school. And, you know, I got my fair share of trouble there as a kid. And, but it was also, you know, when, when I heard about the shooting, I mean, it was, it was super, it was just so chilling because I remember walking those halls and can imagine what those kids you know, the direction they went and what they must have been going through their head. I mean, no one can really imagine, but it's, it's just terrifying. And, and the thing that when I juxtapose it, the irony of it is that before I lived in Florida, I was born in England and spent my formative years there. And, um, and I remember, I don't remember ever, 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 ever as a kid having a conversation with anyone, even up into my early teens about guns. Um, and the only instance that I do recall anything happening was in, 1987, um, when uh, <clears throat> I uh, there was a a guy who you know very similar to these people who who do these shootings today, um, a loner who you know didn't like the fact that everyone else had had a somewhat happy life and wanted to 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 wipe that off the earth and and he 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 killed um, I believe it was around uh, 16 people including himself um, used a semi-automatic weapon and a shotgun and a handgun and. And it was the first, you know, big mass shooting in England, um, and it was the last um, uh, for many, many years. Was, I think there's only been really one since then, um, and and that was actually in Scotland. And and 
<clears throat> and what happened was, as normal you know, human beings do, uh, the British, and as officials, elected officials do, the British government responded by creating a firearms act not less than a year later, which outlawed semi-automatic weapons and made it so that if you had a, um, a shotgun that you could, that the gun could only carry up to three rounds at any one period of time. And, um, and that, and since then, and the reason you haven't heard about these mass shootings in the UK is because, not because people are, have, don't have mental, mental illnesses there because they do. And not because people, um, uh, play you know, first-person shooter video games because they do, but because you cannot get the guns, and so and 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 you look at America where we have 300 million guns or or more, and I was reading a statistic that it's like one the the AR-15 industry is like a a 1.5 billion dollar annual industry, you know, with all the the trinkets and whatnots that people put on them and the guns that they right. buy. And it's the same thing as an M15 that you literally would have used in Vietnam or something like that. It's just. It's insane. It's well, yeah, totally these weapons—they are prepared for that, for that, for that kind of you know uh, artillery battalion uh, experience. But the the thing that um, just to get back to to a previous point, the, the thing that does drive me a little nuts is um, about this you know current uh, ongoing tragedy is how quickly it falls into a sort of cookie cutter um, uh, sort of situation where. This horrible thing happens. Cable news sends everyone down there. Um, it, it's uh, it, it's it's this tragic event that becomes a, a multi-day affair. It drives news cycles, and of course, it, it, it's a horrific event. It, it, it you know we should be talking about it, but um, but you sense how how well the media is able to 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 run with the story and it, it it knows adroitly what the second day and third day and fourth day stories are um it's done this before in other words you know and how quickly um the republicans uh express their response and also just how like how like acutely and disingenuously they do it too you know trump didn't at all mention uh, oh, yeah. automatic weaponry in, in his <clears throat> no. speech today Stephen Nuchin had this this hilarious recanting on, on Capitol Hill where he sort of said yeah we should look into gun laws oh no i, I never never mind I, I i don't mean that and what's frustrating is like i don't know Stephen Nuchin i don't know Donald Trump but i got a feeling that these are not gun lovers themselves these are just two globalist cuck Democrats working in a Republican administration who are paying lip service to what they think is a poignant goal of their constituency. And it's just total bullshit. And, and it reeks of inauthenticity. And you assume, are they just afraid of what the 38% thinks? And, and, and I should note, too, it's not just them. Bernie Sanders gets a high grade from the NRA or has gotten a high grade from the NRA. Um uh, and has made the point very ham-fistedly that that uh, the people in, um, uh, in 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 northern Vermont, what's that that, that sort of strange kingdom area up there, um, uh, should be allowed to 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 have guns for reasons that he's never quite um, uh, cogently expressed, at least in, in my opinion. And Kristen Gillibrand has her own complicated uh, NRA um, ties because they represent constituencies that have, that have large um, rural populations, and it's. It's just quite gutless when you hear people that you do otherwise respect or want to respect have an inability to say, okay, this is a, an open and closed situation, like no automatic weapons, like much more significant checks, and we're going to ensure with, with all the specificity we have, if we have a, a, 
if we have technology that can hack an election, God knows yeah. we can yeah, ensure yeah, yeah. that nutcases can't buy guns. Well, you know what's really ironic is um, uh, <clears throat> I, I lived in Broward County, uh, which is the county where Parkland, Florida is, mm. and this was also the county that literally gave George W. Bush the presidency. Um, and, you know, it's a county that that is teetering on the edge quite often and is one of the probably the most important um, in Florida when it comes to the election cycle. And, you know, I, I wonder, because of the way that Trump is responding and these politicians respond, uh, a Mark Rubio, who I just would love to wring his neck. I mean, him <laughs> tweeting, tweeting Bible verses and like oh saying that it's too quick to jump to conclusions. Like Go he fuck is yourself. so totally like just a piece <clears throat> of gum on your shoe. Yeah, you know he's just awful, a, a awful. Total, and he walks yeah. around with the Bible like he's like a a child of God that's here to like go fuck yourself. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, I just he doesn't I know. Can't. It's true. He's he's quite a he's quite a vacuous windbag. Um, and um, and this a is vacuous windbag. We should make sure that ends up on uh, <laughs> on his Wikipedia page. <laughs> Um, don't, anyway, don't take don't uh, take him too seriously. Is all is all. I mean. Yeah, no, I know. I just, I just, it just ir- irks me that he 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 has this pompous response to things and thinks he's so important and uh, um, and you know is just like a little baby. Anyway, the point is that you know Broward County um, is a big county and Florida is a big state and um, and you know we have the 2018 election coming up, 2020. And, you know, I, there was just a report that Trump is not going to Parkland, Florida now. Um, he was going to go and pay his respects, and now he's not. And, I, and you, know, you know, this gets to the point that I've been making to people that I've been speaking with this week. And, and they, you know, there is – on the podcast, the, the podcast that we've done over the last, you know, eight months or so, Yes, they have been negative sometimes, a little bit too much sometimes, uh, and terrifying and so on. But they have also been, um, there's been another consistent theme. And the consistent theme is with all these things that come up, whether it's climate change or whether it's gun control or whatever it is, um, the experts that I've spoken to always have the same response. And it is that we do have the power to vote and that vote can change the outcome of these mm-hmm. things. And And I think that, you know, it's, this is just another rallying cry for people to get out there to talk to the 91 million losers who didn't vote and make them not losers by voting in right. the in the election and um, and just really you know get the point across that, that we have a we have a voice here. Nick, at what point we've talked about this a little bit before. Um... And you've shot me down, but but now so, let's sorry, do it publicly. Sorry if I'm a little angry today. I'm. Uh... <laughs> no, that, that's all right. No, you're, you're you're just coming in hot. That's fine. But I, I want to know at, at what point will we be able to um, to like vote from our phones or vote from our brains or or, or vote in a way that um, is so non-invasive, not annoying. You know, where if you if you live in New York and you have to wait an hour and a half to um, in line, when will <clears throat> yeah. it be so easy that, that we will all be able to vote and, and therefore vote our conscience? I think that, um, you know, it's a really great point. You know, the, the, the voting rules and regulations um, have been predominantly controlled by the Republicans and the Republicans don't really want people to vote because they know that the Republicans, the staunch Republicans will and that the the teetering Democrats won't, and so we vote on Tuesdays because it's a work day, and it's harder for certain people to to, to vote on those days. We, you know, we have to. Th- there's gerrymandering to ensure that there's confusion, and that that you know certain people have to, more people have to vote in certain districts to ensure that 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 
district gets the votes that it deserves and so on and so forth. And I think that, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, pushback from the Supreme Courts uh, around the country that are saying, hey, these rules are not fair, especially the gerrymandering, and they're throwing them back at the Republicans, which is great. And there are even Republican-held uh, state Supreme Courts that are doing this. Uh, even they are saying this is this is unfair. Um, so there's that. Um, uh, I think that what will happen is that the, you know, I don't believe that we will ever get to a point where you can vote from your phone, at least not for 20 years or something like that. And I think the problem with that is that um, <clears throat> you, uh, um, you know, these systems can be so easily hacked, as we saw with Twitter and Facebook and Russia and Silicon Valley and so on and so forth. So, and you know, all you need is is one thing that happens, and it throws the entire democracy into into total chaos with a, a, a candidate like Trump in 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 the uh, in the wind. And so, I don't think that we will get to a point unless there's some sort of like device that we make that's on some five G network that no one else outside the United States and whatever it is. You know, maybe that's the thing that would happen. But what I do think can happen is if if the Democrats who you know, they've got their faults, don't get me wrong, but one of their faults is not that they don't want people to vote. They do want people to vote. Um, and if, if we can get, if, if, you know, if we get to a situation where the Democrats have control um, of, uh, of the House, the Senate, the White House, whatever, you know, whatever is needed, I think that there could be changes that are technological that could enable people to vote to get to the polls, whether we switch it from Tuesdays to Saturdays, whether we, uh, you know, make it easier to register to find out where you need to go to the polls, whether there's a, you know, a philanthropic billionaire that says on voting day, I'm going to buy out every single Uber and all you need to do is get in and it'll tell you where you, you know, it'll take you directly to the polling station you need to go to, whatever it is. Maybe Google comes up with some calendar program that that, that suggests that you don't set a meeting on this point, um, you, you know, instead go and vote. But I think that there will be technological solutions and, and there are people working on this actually in Silicon Valley that are trying to figure stuff like this out. Um, but I think it'll be a while before you can sit on your couch and, uh, and say, ah, I'm going to vote for this guy or this woman or whoever. Right. No, and, and there are, believe me, there are implicit uh, complications in, in doing that <laughs> that um, that we don't have time to get into. But it it does seem like this is one of those this is one of those touch point issues where, um, not to give too much credit to our friend uh, Donald Trump, but but where there are actually a lot more nuanced opinions uh, within the, the the larger electorate, yeah, and completely. that the, but that the Republican Party has just absolutely made it a banner issue for the party, and that the sooner that um, that can be disentangled and, and that the Republicans can, can find out within their own data that actually not as many Republicans support this agenda as they think. It'll be better for you know. This isn't a bipart. Uh, this isn't a partisan issue. This is a issue for humanity. This is horrible and stupid, and and it's okay that you're angry. I'm 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 angry too. Um, the the ease and facility with which major Republicans on Capitol Hill just grooved right into their sort of rapid response maneuvering is just so. Disgusting. Oh, it's it's just it's diabolical. Oh, disgusting. It's, it, it, it's disgraceful. It is truly disgraceful. And you look at I, these parents. It, you know, we're, we're both parents. <clears> you look at these 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 parents. Um, uh, just in 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 unfathomable agony. And uh, you have. Oh, to yeah. They, they they deserve better than than just that kind of bullshit. No, I I that that's for me. Like, um, uh, you know, I have a a toddler as you do and you know I drop my kid off at school and and that's something I worry about and it's insane that that's something I have to worry about and 
um, and I can't even com I can't even comprehend what these parents must go through um, in 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 the immediate moments, and then the months, years, decades after. Um, and it must be it must be so infuriating to see the people who are elected into government do absolutely nothing to fix it. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's something that nobody wants to touch. And you realize that in these moments, you you know, we were lucky enough to, to be sort of in the um, in the formative years of our adulthood during the Obama administration, and, and we sort of assumed that there'd be, you know, the transformational political figures would be um, more frequent than than of course they are. They're you know they're they're generational or or, or what have you. But that Obama himself um, is. Uh, was unable to um, to move the ball forward on this issue, and that uh, there does not seem to be someone um, uh, courageous enough to to, to uh, you know to, to speak up for for the victims here and for gun control is also scary to me. We talk a lot on this podcast about the just hand wringing and lack of uh, coherence on the left, and I kind of I was kind of expecting in the last couple of days for someone. You know, um, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, um, uh, not, not Joe Brand, but but someone to, to come forward and use this opportunity to to articulate a very precise and clear and engaging and unifying message, and and no one did, and it um, uh, it, it shows you how compromised so many of these candidates are. You know, even on yeah, the left too, uh, they've taken money from the NRA, and and they can't they can't put yep. themselves out there. No, it's. Um... It's uh, it's completely disheartening, but I I do think that um, you know there are websites out there that people can go to to see you know you can go to the NRA you actually should go to the NRA website and you should see who the NRA gives the best scores to and then vote for the other person um, yeah. uh, because I think that's the only way that this is ever going to change. All right, let's let's end on a um, uh, on a positive note. Um, uh, Sam was. Incredibly smart. Um, uh, uh, I decided not to debate him because I knew I would lose, uh, but he definitely uh, kept my head spinning. Uh, at the end of this, um, uh, where are you on the whole uh, I believe in God or I don't believe in God um, uh, debate? You know, I think that one's faith is a, is a personal uh, matter for many, but I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm... Um, uh, I don't believe in in God. I've never never been a religious person in my entire life. Um, I'm I, I always get this wrong. I'm, I'm an atheist or agnostic. I just like I don't believe in any of it. But I but I totally respect people who who do um, who do believe it and, and for whom it's it's inherently powerful. But I also but I, I will say that there's like a there's a, a sort of gray area too that I think that um, that you can live in, which occasionally I find myself living in, especially during like rough periods where you can be um you can be spiritual in a kind of non-precise way meaning you can you can like look for for meaning in in, in your own life and others lives without having to believe that like you know adam and eve creationism all all, jesus. all that jesus yeah yeah oh, yeah yeah right i mean um uh i i think that there's if, if you want to read the the uh, one of the, the most um uh, uh meaningful intellectual intellectual exercises I went through as a um a young person was I, I was in a college course that made you read, you know, the uh Abrahamic Bible and then um the the uh, Judo Christian Bible and then and then the Quran and um I gotta tell you man, like 
I'm happy with my own dogma. <laughs> yeah. I like it my well, way. I, I, it reminds me of the uh, uh, David Carr, um, our mutual friend from the New York Times who passed away. He, at the bottom of his emails, he had a, uh, I believe it was a Hunter S. Thompson quote that said, pray to God, but row away from the rocks. <laughs> yeah. That's true. On that note, thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you, John Kelly. We will uh, get back to it next week. All right. Thanks, Nick. Thanks to my guest today, Sam Harris, and, of course, thanks to John Kelly. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave the greatest humanly possible review while you're there, preferably with 30 stars, whatever it is. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work, my editors at Vanity Fair, and thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Goop and Freshly. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week.